be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Horse and the Olive from James Baldwin's Old Greek Stories. As this story is fairly short, I'll finish this episode with readings from E. M. Berens, Myths and Legends of Ancient Greece and Rome. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Story 1 The Horse and the Olive On a steep stony hill in Greece there lived in early times a few very poor people who had not yet learned to build houses. They made their homes in little caves which they dug in the earth or hollowed out among the rocks, and their food was the flesh of wild animals, which they hunted in the woods, with now and then a few berries or nuts. They did not even know how to make bows and arrows, but used slings and clubs and sharp sticks for weapons and the little clothing which they had was made from skins. They lived on the top of the hill, because they were safe there from the savage beasts of the great forest around them, and safe also from the wild men, who sometimes roamed through the land. The hill was so steep on every side that there was no way of climbing it save by a single narrow footpath which was always guarded by someone at the top. One day, when the men were hunting in the woods, they found a strange youth whose face was so fair and who was dressed so beautifully that they could hardly believe him to be a man like themselves. His body was so slender and lithe, and he moved so nimbly among the trees that they fancied him to be a serpent in the guise of a human being and they stood still in wonder and alarm. The young man spoke to them, but they could not understand a word that he said. Then he made signs to them that he was hungry, and they gave him something to eat, and were no longer afraid. Had they been like the wild might have killed him at once. But they wanted their women and children to see the serpent man, as they called him, and hear him talk. And so they took him home with them to the top of the hill. They thought that after they had made a show of him, for a few days, they would kill him to the unknown being whom they dimly fancied to have some sort of control over their lives. 
but the young man was so fair and gentle that, after they had all taken a look at him, they began to think it would be a great pity to harm him. So they gave him food and treated him kindly, and he sang songs to them and played with their children and made them happier than they had been for many a day. In a short time he learned to talk their language, and he told them that his name was Cesarops, and that he had been shipwrecked on the sea coast not far away, and then he told them many strange things about the land from which he had come, and to which he would never be able to return. The poor people listened and wondered, and it was not long until they began to love him, and looked up to him as one wiser than themselves. Then they came to ask him about everything that was to be done, and there was not one of them who refused to do his bidding. So Cesrops, the serpent man, as they still called him, became the king of the poor people on the hill. He taught them how to make bows and arrows, and how to set nets for birds, and how to take fish with hooks. He led them against the savage wild men of the woods, and helped them kill the fierce beasts that had been such a great terror to them. He showed them how to build houses of wood and to thatch them with the reeds which grew in the marshes. He taught them how to live in families, instead of herding together like senseless beasts, as they had always done before. And he told them about great Jupiter and the mighty folk who lived amid the clouds on the mountain top. By and by, instead of the wretched caves among the rocks, there was a little town on the top of the hill, with neat houses and a market place, and around it was a strong wall with a single narrow gate just where the footpath began to descend to the plain. But as yet the place had no name. One morning while the king and his wise men were sitting together in the marketplace and planning how to make the town become a rich, strong city, two strangers were seen in the street. Nobody could tell how they came here. The guard at the gate had not seen them, and no man had ever dared to climb the narrow footway without his leave. But there the two strangers stood. One was a man, the other a woman, and they were so tall, and their faces were so grand and noble that those who saw them stood still and wondered and said not a word. The man had a robe of purple and green wrapped round his body, and he bore in one hand a strong star with three sharp spear points at one end. The woman was not beautiful, but she had wonderful grey eyes, and in one hand she carried a spear, and in the other a shield of curious workmanship. 
What is the name of this town? asked the man. The people stared at him in wonder, and hardly understood his meaning. Then an old man answered and said, It has no name. We who live on this hill used to be called Cronai, but since the king Sesrops came, we have been so busy that we have had no time to think of names. Where is this King Sesrops? asked the woman. He is in the marketplace with the wise men, was the answer. Lead us to him at once, said the man. When Sesrop saw the two strangers coming into the marketplace, he stood up and waited for them to speak. The man spoke first. I am Neptune, said he, and I rule the sea. And I am Athena, said the woman, and I give wisdom to men. I hear that you are planning to make your town become a great city, said Neptune, and I have come to help you. Give my name to the place, and let me be your protector and patron, and the wealth of the whole world shall be yours. Ships from every land shall bring you merchandise and gold and silver, and you shall be the masters of the sea. My uncle makes you fair promises said Athena, but listen to me. Give my name to your city, and let me be your patron, and I will give you that which gold cannot buy. I will teach you how to do a thousand things of which you now know nothing. I will make your city my favorite home and I will give you wisdom that shall sway the minds and hearts of all men until the end of time. The king bowed and turned to the people, who had all crowded in the marketplace. Which of these mighty ones shall we elect to be the protector and patron of our city? he asked. Neptune offers us wealth. Athena promises us wisdom. Which shall we choose? Neptune and wealth, cried many. Athena and wisdom, cried as many others. At last, when it was plain that the people could not agree, an old man whose advice was always heeded, stood up and said, These mighty ones have only given us promises, and they have promised things of which we are ignorant. For who among us knows what wealth is, or what wisdom is? Now, if they would only give us some real gift... Right now and right here, which we can see and handle, we should know better how to choose. That is true, that is true, cried the people. Very well then, said the strangers. We will each give you a gift, right now and right here and then you may choose between us. Neptune gave the first gift. He stood on the highest point of the hill, where the rock was bare, 
and bade the people see his power. He raised his three-pointed spear high in the air, and then brought it down with a great force. Lightning flashed, the earth shook, and the rock was split halfway down to the bottom of the hill. Then out of the yawning crevice there sprang a wonderful creature, white as milk, with long slender legs, an arching neck, and a mane and tail of silk. The people had never seen anything like it before, and they thought it a new kind of bear or wolf or wild boar that had come out of the rock to devour them. Some of them ran and hid in their houses, while others climbed upon the wall, and still others grasped their weapons in alarm. But when they saw the creature stand quietly by the side of Neptune, they lost their fear and came closer to see and admire its beauty. This is my gift, said Neptune. This animal will carry your burdens for you. He will draw your chariots. He will pull your wagons and your plows. He will let you sit on his back and will run with you faster than the wind. What is his name? asked the king. His name is Horse, answered Neptune. Then Athena came forward. She stood a moment on a green grassy plot where the children of the town liked to play in the evening. Then she drove the point of her spear down in the soil. At once the air was filled with music, and out of the earth there sprang a tree with slender branches and dark green leaves and white flowers and violet-green fruits. This is my gift, said Athena. This tree will give you food when you are hungry. It will shelter you from the sun when you are faint. It will beautify your city, and the oil from its fruits will be sought by all the world. What is it called? asked the king. It is called Olive, answered Athena. Then the king and his wise men began to talk about the two gifts. I do not see that horse will be much to us, said the old man who had spoken before. For as to the chariots and wagons and plows, we have none of them, and indeed do not know what they are, and who among us will ever want to sit on this creature's back and be born faster than the wind? But Olive will be a thing of beauty and joy for us and our children forever. Which shall we choose? asked the king, turning to the people. Athena has given us the best gift, they all cried, and we choose Athena and wisdom. Be it so, said the king, and the name of our city shall be Athens. From that day the town grew and spread, and soon there was not room on the hilltop for all the people. Then houses were built 
sat in the plain around the foot of the hill, and a great road was built to the sea, three miles away, and in all the world there was no city more fair than Athens. In the old marketplace on the top of the hill, the people built a temple to Athena, the ruins of which may still be seen. The olive tree grew and nourished, and when you visit Athens, people will show you the very spot where it stood. Many other trees sprang from it, and in time became a blessing both to Greece and to all the other countries round the great sea. As for the horse, he wandered away across the plains towards the north and found a home at last in distant Thessaly, beyond the river Pineus. And I have heard it said that all the horses in the world have descended from that one which Neptune brought out of the rock. But of the truth of this story, there may be some doubts. Now for myths and legends of ancient Greece and Rome. Origin of the World First Dynasty, Uranus and Gaia. The ancient Greeks had several different theories with regard to the origin of the world, but the generally accepted notion was that before this world came into existence, there was in its place a confused mass of shapeless elements called chaos. These elements became at length consolidated by what means does not appear, resolved themselves into two widely different substances, the lighter portion of which, soaring on high, formed the sky or firmament, and constituted itself into a vast, overarching vault which protected the firm and solid mass beneath. Thus came into being the two first great primeval deities of the Greeks, Uranus and Ghi or Gaia. Uranus, the more refined deity, represented light and air of the heavens, possessing the distinguishing qualities of light, heat, purity, and omnipresence, whilst Gaia, the firm, flat, life-sustaining earth, was worshipped as the great all-nourishing mother. Her many titles refer to her more or less in this character, and she appears to have been universally revered among the Greeks, there being scarcely a city in Greece which did not contain a temple erected in her honour. Indeed, Gaia was held in such veneration that her name was always invoked whenever the gods took a solemn oath, made an empathetic declaration, or implored assistance. Uranus, the heavens, was believed to have united himself in marriage with Gaia, the earth and a moment's reflection will show what a truly poetical, and also what a logical idea this was, for, taken in a figurative sense, this union actually does exist. 
The smiles of heaven produced the flowers of earth, whereas his long, continued frowns exercise so depressing an influence upon his loving partner that she no longer decks herself in bright and festive robes, but responds with ready sympathy to his melancholy mood. The first-born child of Uranus and Gaia was Oceanus, the ocean stream, that vast expanse, ever-flowing water which encircled the earth. Here we meet with another logical, though fanciful, conclusion, which a very slight knowledge of the workings of nature proves to have been just as true. The ocean is formed from the rains which descend from heaven, and streams which flow from earth. By making Oceanus, therefore, the offspring of Uranus and Gaia, the ancients, if we take this notion in its literal sense, merely assert that the ocean is produced by the combined influence of heaven and earth, whilst at the same time their fervid and poetic imagination led them to see in this, as in all manifestations of the power of nature, an actual, tangible divinity. But Uranus, the heaven, the embodiment of light, heat, and the breath of life, produced offspring who were of a much less material nature than his son, Oceanus. These other children of his were supposedly to occupy the intermediate space which divided him from Gaia. Nearest to Uranus, and just beneath him, came Ether, a bright creation representing that highly rarefied atmosphere which immortals alone could breathe. Then followed air, which was in close proximity to Gaia, and represented, as its name implies, the grosser atmosphere surrounding the earth which mortals could freely breathe and without which they would perish. Ether and air were separated from each other by divinities called Nephile. These were their restless and wandering sisters who existed in the form of clouds ever floating between ether and earth. Gaia also produced the mountains and Pontus, the sea. She united herself with the latter, and their offspring were the sea deities Nereus, Thaumos, Porocus, Situ, and Arebia. Coexistent with Uranus and Gaia were two mighty powers who were also the offspring of chaos. These were Erebus, darkness, and Nyx, night, who formed a striking contrast to the cheerful light of heaven and the bright smiles of earth. Erebus reigned in that mysterious world below, where no ray of sunshine, no gleam of daylight, nor vestige of health-giving terrestrial life ever appeared. Nyx, the sister of Erebus, represented night, and was worshipped by the ancients with the greatest solemnity. Uranus was also supposed to have been united to Nyx, 
but only in his capacity as God of light, he being considered the source and fountain of all light, and their children were Eos, Aurora, the dawn, and Hemera, the daylight. Nyx again, on her side, was also doubly united, having been married at some indefinite period to Erebus. In addition to those children of heaven and earth already enumerated, Uranus and Gaia produced two distinctly different races of beings, called giants and titans. The giants personified brute strength alone, but the titans united to their great physical power intellectual qualifications variously developed. There were three giants, Boreas, Cotus, and Gegis, who each possessed a hundred hands and fifty heads, and were known collectively by the name of the Hecatoncheries, which signified hundred-handed. These mighty giants could shake the universe and produce earthquakes. It is therefore evident that they represented those active subterranean forces to which allusion has been made in the opening chapter. The Titans were twelve in number. Their names were Oceanus, Ceos, Creos, Hyperion, Lapitus, Cronus, Thea, Rhea, Themis, Eumemsine, Phoebe, and Tethius. Now Uranus, the chast light of heaven, the essence of all that is bright and pleasing, held in aberrance his crude, rough, and turbulent offspring, the giants, and moreover feared that their great power might eventually prove hurtful to himself. He therefore hurled them into Tartarus, that portion of the lower world which served as the subterranean dungeon of the gods. In order to avenge the oppression of her children, the giants, Gaia insisted a conspiracy on the part of the titans against Uranus, which was carried to a successful issue by her son, Cronus. He wounded his father, and from the blood of the wound which fell upon the earth sprang a race of monstrous beings, also called giants. Assisted by his brother Titans, Cronus succeeded in dethroning his father, who, enraged at his defeat, cursed his rebellious son and foretold to him a similar fate. Cronus now became invested with supreme power, and assigned to his brother's offices of distinction, subordinate only to himself. Subsequently, however, when secure of his position, he no longer needed their assistance he basely repaid their former services with treachery, made war upon his brothers and faithful allies, and, assisted by the giants, completely defeated them, sending such as resisted his all-conquering arm down into the lowest depths of the Tartarus. 
Second Dynasty Cronus Cronus was the god of time in its sense of eternal duration. He married Rhea, daughter of Uranus and Gaia, a very important divinity to whom a special chapter will be devoted hereafter. Their children were three sons, Aedis, Pluto, Poseidon, Neptune, Zeus, Jupiter, and three daughters, Hestia, Vesta, Demeter, Ceres, and Hera, Juno. Cronus, having an uneasy conscience, was afraid that his children might one day rise up against his authority and thus verify the prediction of his father, Uranus. In order, therefore, to render the prophecy impossible of fulfilment, Cronus swallowed each child as soon as it was born, greatly to the sorrow and indignation of his wife, Rhea. When it came to Zeus, the sixth and last, Rhea resolved to try and save this one child at least, to love and cherish, and appealed to her parents, Uranus and Gaia, for counsel and assistance. By their advice, she wrapped a stone in baby clothes, and Cronus, in eager haste, swallowed it, without noticing the deception. The child thus saved, eventually, as we shall see, dethroned his father Cronus, became supreme god in his stead, and was universally venerated as the great national god of the Greeks. Anxious to preserve the secret of his existence from Cronus, Rhea sent the infant Zeus secretly to Crete, where he was nourished, protected, and educated. A sacred goat called Amalthea supplied the place of his mother by providing him with milk, nymphs, called Melissiae, fed him with honey, and eagles and doves brought him nectar and ambrosia. He was kept concealed in a cave in the heart of Mount Eda, and the curities, or priests of Rhea, by beating their shields together, kept up a constant noise at the entrance which drowned the cries of the child and frightened away all intruders. Under the watchful care of the nymphs, the infant Zeus throve rapidly, developing great physical powers combined with extraordinary wisdom and intelligence. Grown to manhood, he determined to compel his father to restore his brothers and sisters to the light of day, and is said to have been assisted in this difficult task by the goddess Metis, who artfully persuaded Cronus to drink a potion which caused him to back the children he had swallowed. The stone which had counterfeited Zeus was placed at Delphi, where it was long exhibited as a sacred relic. Cronus was so enraged at being circumvented that war between the father and son became inevitable. The rival forces ranged themselves on two separate high mountains in Thessaly, Zeus with his brothers and sisters, 
took his stand on Mount Olympus, where he was joined by Oceanus and others of the Titans, who had forsaken Cronus on account of his oppressions. Cronus and his brother Titans took possession of Mount Othyrus and prepared for battle. The struggle was long and fierce, and at length Zeus, finding that he was no nearer victory than before, bethought himself of the existence of the imprisoned giants, and knowing that they would be able to render him most powerful assistance, he hastened to liberate them. He also called to his aid the Cyclops, son of Poseidon and Amphorite, who had only one eye each in the middle of their forehead and were called Brontes, Thunder, Sterops, Lightning, and Pyramon, Fire Anvil. They promptly responded to his summons for help and brought with them tremendous thunderbolts which the Hecon cherries, with their hundred hands, hurled down upon the enemy, at the same time raising mighty earthquakes which swallowed up and destroyed all who opposed them. Aided by these new and powerful allies, Zeus now made a furious onslaught on his enemies, and so tremendous was the encounter that all nature is said to have throbbed in accord with this mighty effort of the celestial deities. The sea rose mountains high, and its angry billows hissed and foamed, and the earth shook to its foundations. The heavens sent forth rolling thunder, and flash after flash of death-bringing lightning, whilst a blinding mist enveloped Cronus and his allies. And now the fortunes of war began to turn, and victory smiled upon Zeus. Cronus and his army were completely overthrown, his depths of the lower world, and Cronus himself was banished from his kingdom and deprived forever of the supreme power, which now became vested in his son Zeus. This war was called the Titanomachia, and is most graphically described by the old classic poets. With the defeat of Cronus and his banishment from his dominions, his career as a ruling Greek divinity entirely ceases. But being, like all the gods, immortal, he was supposed to be still in existence, though possessing no longer either influence or authority, his place being filled to a certain extent by his descendant and successor, Zeus. Cronus is often represented as an old man leaning on a scythe with an hourglass in his hand. The hourglass symbolizes the fast fleeting moments as they succeed each other unceasingly. The scythe is emblematical of time, which mows down all before it. The Romans, according to their customs of identifying their deities with those of the Greek gods, whose attributes were similar to their own, declared Cronus to be identical with their old agricultural divinity, Saturn. They believed that after his defeat in the Titanomachia and his banishment from his dominions by Zeus, he took refuge with Janus, king of Italy, 
who received the exiled deity with great kindness and even shared his throne with him. Their united reign became so thoroughly peaceful and happy and was distinguished by such uninterrupted prosperity that it was called the Golden Age. Saturn is usually represented bearing a sickle in the one hand and a wheat sheath in the other. A temple was erected to him at the foot of the Capitoline Hill, in which were deposited the public treasury and the laws of the state. Rhea The wife of Cronus, and mother of Zeus and the other great gods of Olympus, personified the earth and was regarded as the mother and unceasing producer of all plant life. She was also believed to exercise unbounded sway over animal creation, more especially over the lion, the noble king of beasts. Rhea is generally represented wearing a crown of turrets, or towers and seated on a throne, with lions crouched at her feet. She is sometimes depicted sitting in a chariot drawn by lions. The principal seat of her worship, which was always a very riotous character, was at Crete. At her festivals, which took place at night, the wildest music of flutes, cymbals, and drums resounded, whilst joyful shouts and cries accompanied by dancing and loud stamping of feet filled the air. The divinity was introduced into Crete by its first colonists from Phrygia, in Asia Minor in which country she was worshipped under the name of Sibel. The people of Crete adored her as the Great Mother, more especially in her signification as the sustainer of the vegetable world. Seeing, however, that year by year, as winter appears, all her glory vanishes, her flowers fade, and her trees become leafless. They poetically expressed this process of nature under the figure of a lost love. She was said to have been tenderly attached to a youth of remarkable beauty named Attis, who, to her grief and indignation, proved faithless to her. He was about to unite himself to a nymph called Sagaris, when, in the midst of the wedding feast, the rage of the incest goddess suddenly burst forth upon all present. A panic seized the assembled guests, and Attis, becoming afflicted with temporary madness, fled to the mountains and destroyed himself. Sebo, moved with sorrow and regret, instituted a yearly mourning for his loss, when her priests, the Corabantes, with their usual noisy accompaniments, marched into the mountains to seek the lost youth. Having discovered him, they gave full vent to their ecstatic delight by indulging in the most violent gesticulations, dancing, shouting, and, at the same time, wounding and gashing themselves in a frightful manner. In Rome, the Greek rear was identified with Ops, the goddess of plenty, 
the wife of Saturn, who had a variety of applications. She was called Magna Mater, Mater Diorum, Beresinthia Idea, and also Dinamine. This latter title she acquired from three high mountains in Phrygia, whence she was brought to Rome as Sebel during the Second Punic War, B.C. 205, in obedience to an injunction contained in the Silabine books. She was represented as a matron, crowned with towers, seated in a chariot drawn by lions. 